This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show. Today, we'll be interviewing Jason Boozy. Jason is one of the most well-known investors in the Bay Area. He has been consistently earning over seven figures a year and has presented at countless meetups, conferences, and events. He's incredibly generous with his knowledge and constantly shares his viewpoints about investing with his group on Facebook, Living the Dream. He has written a best-selling book called Smash Your Alarm Clock and was even the host of Hidden Cash, a game where he hid bundles of cash all around San Francisco for people to find. And like many investors in the Bay Area, he's a home flipper. But instead of focusing on more projects, he focuses on fewer but bigger deals. He hates running a complicated business with a lot of overhead and loves the freedom that comes with just being a sole proprietor. Today, Jason is going to share his knowledge on how he's able to consistently earn seven figures a year and gives actionable steps for newbies who are interested in getting started in the business. It's all about mindset. Here's Jason. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let people know who you are and what kind of investing you do. Hi, everybody. Uh, Jason Boozy. I'm a real estate investor here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been full-time in real estate since 2005. Um, I've done everything from wholesaling to partnering on the construction of new $5 million houses, double closing, rentals, a lot of rehabs, pretty much uh, most of the investing type, residential investing type methods that you imagine take place, I've done. Primarily, my focus has been on investing here in the Bay Area where I live. Cool. So I was wondering, how do you find deals nowadays? And what is your typical buying criteria? Well, um, I find deals primarily using two methods. One is through real estate agents, and the other one is through direct mail. I will occasionally get a deal from one of, some other method, like maybe a referral of somebody I know, or... You know, occasionally I've gotten some from internet leads, but primarily those continue to be my main two methods, and they have been almost from the start in 2005. And how many agents do you usually work with, and how many of those are consistently giving you those deals? As far as how many I have in my database, there's quite a few. As far as how many I regularly get, you know, off-market deals from, I would say it's it's hard to say. It's very sporadic. Like you could hear from somebody that, in fact, just before we got on this call, I heard from somebody that I don't think I heard from since I was going to say last year, but that was only about a month ago, but probably in at least six months, I hadn't heard from this um, agent. She was telling me about something. Honestly, it's uh, kind of sporadic these days. I used to have two or three that were pretty consistent. And I think what's happened is at least in one case, I, I think he's flipping himself. And you'll see that a lot in this business, and we can talk about that, that you know, people see the kind of money that you can make and they start wanting to do it themselves. I, I mean, I have a database, but I would say as far as consistency, it's, it could come from anywhere. It's hard to say how many consistently bring me deals. It's definitely something that I need to reinvest in, speaking frankly, because it's something that I've kind of neglected a little bit recently and haven't worked as much on building up those relationships. I did um, meet with several new agents last couple of weeks, but it's something that, that could be an ongoing. I mean, the, the, the 
challenge is that you don't want to just have people in your database. You actually want to build relationships, right? Yep. And, you know, and, and that, that really takes time and effort. It's not like just, you know, let me know when you find something. And then the other challenge is that a lot of agents don't get it and they keep sending you stuff that is on the MLS or that's overpriced or that doesn't make sense. So, you know, there's still, there's still quite a bit that you have to deal with. And I'm working on, on building that up. I kind of neglected it for a while. I'm just got busy with, with different deals. But I, let, let me just tell you real quick how I started. So when I started in 2005, the way that I got started was a friend of mine was starting to flip. And I said, is there any way I can get involved? Because at that time I was broke. The last thing I had done was I was in the mortgage business. I had, you know, interest rates went up, business completely died off. I spent what little savings I had. I was leaving, living in a little studio apartment and I was broke and I had like $2,000 to my name. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was never like a corporate type, even though, you know, I have a good education. I have a master's degree and I never went the corporate route. It was never appealed to me. I was never a good fit for being an employee. And so when my friend was starting to, you know, got his license, was starting to flip, for some reason, I was never attracted to being an agent. That never really was something that crossed my mind. But I was really interested in seeing if there was some way that I could get involved with real estate without being an agent. And so I said, is there anything I can do? And he said, sure, find an off-market deal. And I said, where? And he gave me a couple of areas. And he didn't tell me how. And this is where I had to figure out myself. First of all, I had kind of vaguely heard about direct mail. I mean, keep in mind, this is like before, this is 2005. So this is like before the podcast, before Bigger Pockets, before all the you know information overload that you have today, right? There's just so much out there now for somebody that's looking into real estate investing or wholesaling that, you know, you probably would agree with me that if anything, it's not a lack of information. If anything, it's information overload, right? Yep. And in those days, you didn't have all that. I mean, we're talking like 14 years ago. This is, you know, ancient history technology wise. So I just kind of had to improvise. And I was like, okay, I kind of knew about direct mail, but I had $2,000 and I didn't have money to market. So I just went out and I started talking to agents and I said, hey, I'm with an investment group and we're looking for off-market properties. Do you have anything? And I would go and I would meet them at open houses and things like that in the areas that I was targeting. And a couple of weeks later, one of them calls me and he's like, I have a deal. And I said, great, let me go check it out. It was a house in Palo Alto. They wanted a million bucks. I offered 950. I had no money, but I offered 950. And they came back at 975. And at that point, I said, I'll do it. Now, I had no ability or, or wherewithal to close it. But I said, I'll do it. And then I figured, you know, my friend might do it or he, his client might do it. So I got under contract and ended up, um, long story short, about three days later, after a lot of stress, is uh, clients for me because they basically gave me a three-day deadline to put up the deposit and all of that stuff. His clients decided that they will um, buy the house. I got a $25,000 assignment fee up front. Nice. For a guy that had no job and $2,000 in the bank, that was like a huge, huge jackpot. You know, I was on cloud nine. I was like, could this be something real? Or was this like a fluke that I just got lucky one time? Could this be a real business? So 
The second deal I found, I actually deliberately did not tell my friend, the realtor, about it because I wanted to know that this was not, you know, I didn't just make that money because my friend helped me, but this is actually something I can do on my own and is sustainable. So the first two deals I got from agents, the third deal I decided to mail, and I mailed what everybody tells you to mail, which is pre-foreclosures, and I actually got lucky and got one. And I say got lucky because the response rate, um, if you know, to pre-foreclosures is so, so low, and they get saturated by so much mail. And even back then, they said, we got a lot of mail, but yours happened to come today, and today's the day we said, you know what, we have to sell. And I assigned that one, and I made 50K. Nice. So that's like the first you know, two and a half, three months of doing this business back in late 2005. And those are the two methods that I've used and still use to this day, which is had some from agents, had some from direct mail. And the better deals tend to be the ones that you get directly from the sellers. So talking about direct mail nowadays, how much are you sending out and, you know, where are you targeting and how often do you touch the same home? Do you mean what I do or what I should do? Because I don't always do what I should do, right? You, so, what do you do? Because, you know, there's obviously a theory of what you should be doing, but what you're doing is working. I think people yeah. want to hear what are you doing so they can, you know, if they want to replicate it, they just know what you're doing and they know that works. Yeah, let me tell you what I'm doing and then let me tell you what I think I should be doing better. Sure. Um, because I don't always do, do things the best way. Um, I would say that uh, for the last several years, my average was has been five to 8,000 mail pieces per, mo per month. Um, so that's what 60 to a hundred thousand a year. Um, what I meant by what I do and what I should do is, you know, I'm being completely transparent here. I'm not as consistent with it as I should be. Like if I'll get deals, I'll say, okay, let's pause that for a bit. Uh, cause I'm busy. What you really should do is you should never pause it. You should always be marketing. You should always be mailing. And the problem with me are the pros and cons of being a one man show which is I know some very successful people that have built businesses that are more successful than mine that did not do it as one person. They have entire teams. Now, you can say, Jason, why don't you build a team then? Well, it's easier said than done to build a team and find the right people and train them and manage them and so on. And also I've done pretty well on my own. But my direct mail and my whole mindset has been for the most part geared towards how do I do big deals? You know, mm -hmm. not how do I do more deals, but how do I do big deals? And so starting from 2005, I was doing like the most high end areas of Silicon Valley, you know, which I'm sure everybody knows what those are or can easily figure out what those are. Whereas the gurus are telling you to do for the most part, the real estate gurus are telling you do motivated sellers, do cheap houses, do cash buyers. I and build a big buyers list. I did not follow any of those things. And I'm glad I didn't follow any of those things because my sellers for the most part are not quote unquote motivated, which implies some kind of desperation. They're not cheap houses by any means, even by Bay Area standards, they're not cheap houses. Again, most of what I do with exception. My buyers, even when I was wholesaling, they were getting loans. And I never had a huge buyers list, and I don't want a big buyers list. When you have people that you know and trust and you have connections, you don't need a big list. 
So my approach has always been, as far as direct mail, more towards location-based as opposed to situation-based. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, so you just basically bombed an area where there's potential for big numbers. Like you don't do it in Lapidus because there's small numbers. Probably in Palo Alto when you know you can make a lot more for one deal. So that's true for the most part. I, I will test out different areas. I mean, if I, if I do Milpitas, for example, and I see that I'm getting a 3% response rate and I'm getting 0.2% response rate everywhere else, then great. I doubt that'll be the case. But the point is that I'm looking more at getting to know specific areas. And this is how I recommend for other investors listening to at least try this approach or at least entertain the idea of this approach because it's very different than what most gurus will tell you. Most gurus are all situation, situation, situation. And what's the most common situation or the most obvious situation is look for distress. Look for people that are in pre-foreclosure. Look for people that are going through a divorce. Look for people that need to do a short sale. Look for people that are going through bankruptcy. Look for people where there was a death in the family. Look for people that are tax delinquent. All these different situations. I'm not saying there's no merit there. I've done some of that too. I'm saying that when you do situations, it gets saturated. You're not, and these people, if you, for example, um, somebody spoke, you might have been there even, Chan, but somebody was uh, giving sort of the, at, at Jeff's uh, meetup, I think it was Pierre was speaking about how many, he's the real estate agent who does sort of the intro and he talks about the market conditions. And one time when I spoke there about a year or two ago, he was going, going through the numbers and he said, and we have six pre-foreclosures in Santa Clara County. Mm -hmm. And there's about 2 million people living in Santa Clara County and you have six pre-foreclosures. And I happened to be standing because I was going to speak and I, I took the mic and I said, and you have 600 newbies going after those six pre-foreclosures. And everybody laughed, but you know, the point was taken, which is there's relatively few of them, especially recently, right? I mean, if we go through a 2008 or nine again type of situation, there, there'll be more, <clears throat> but I think in, in like a lot of the high-end areas, there, there never were that many. And then you have a lot of people chasing those because those are like the, the red flags that say like, go after me and that the gurus teach you to go after. And again, I've done some of that. I even told you my third deal ever was a pre-foreclosure. But I prefer to focus on location and property type. What do real estate agents do? Real estate agents, they do what's called <clears throat> farm to farm an area. They farm an area. Uh, you called it bomb. Let's use the more gentle word. <laughs> right? Right. So they farm an area that's like they're planting the seed over and over again. And that same person who got my letter or their letter may not respond until the 7th, 8th, 10th, 12th time. Like, oh, my God, this Jason guy's persistent. Let's call him. You know, or, or your name sticks up. So you, you never know. If I do the Rick Mail campaign and I don't get a deal in the first three months, I don't know that that didn't work because I've gotten deals years later, literally years later, from mail that I did several years back, and then they call you. You know, I got your letter in 2014, and it's like 2019 now. This literally happened. The two deals that I did last year, they were not in 2018. 
they were for mail sent in previous years. In one case, a year earlier, and another case, about three years earlier. And they, they held on to the letter. So, but my main point is I'm focused on location and less focused on situation. And, I, and there's an, another advantage, which is when you get to know an area like that, you know all the different players. You know who the real estate agents are there. You know who the developers are there. You know what property prices are there. You get to know it intimately. So like if, if you give the example now of Milpitas, I would have to look up comps. I'd have to know. Whereas if you gave the example now, of, let's say Burlingame, for example, I might have much more comfort with, with the prices and with the neighborhoods and not have to go and run and look something up. Now, does that mean I'm not going to do deal in Milpitas if somebody brings me a deal? Of course I will if the numbers make sense. But it just means that there's certain areas that I specialize in and that I know them very well, and I don't need to just rely on comps as much. And I understand the demand, and I understand the market. And that's another advantage to becoming an expert in certain locations. And if you look at how real estate agents do their business, some of the best real estate agents, they do that. They really specialize in an area, and they farm it, and they farm it, and they farm it for years. And um, so that's kind of my approach with that. Makes sense. Um, how often do you send you know, mail to the same address? Or same location? Um, so I will typically four to six times a year. Wow. Um, which is every two to three months if it's your like A list. This has evolved a little bit. Um, what I've done has evolved a little bit and not necessarily by choice, but just due to market conditions or competition conditions. Um, there were there were lists that I was mailing from like 2010 to 2015 that I don't think anybody else was mailing to. I would get calls from homeowners and they'd say, we never got another letter like this. You're the only person like this sending it to us. And that doesn't mean that I was getting like this huge response rate, um, but it means I was competing with fewer investors. And then I became like a true alternative to the real estate agent, to the typical um, alternative of let me list your home for you and charge you five or 6%. And we'll clean it, we'll paint it, we'll stage it, we'll put it on the market. Or you have this guy, Jason Boozy, saying, I'll just buy your home as is, right? Mm -hmm. And no closing costs and no commission. So at least you're becoming an alternative to the agent. But when there's five other guys like you, then now you're fighting with each other. And that hasn't happened too often, you know. Um, but it, it would definitely happen if you were going after the kind of more obviously distressed properties. So in your list, are you targeting people with a certain amount of equity, like, or I've age done, in the home? I've done equity. Yeah, I've, I've done equity. I've done more more property type, honestly. Like, it's more area and property type. Like, you know, we're looking to add value, right? Like, you know, I was in Hayward last week, for example, looking at some properties in Hayward. Well, in Hayward, you got a lot of homes that are like 500000 and under, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's not as much of an obvious play there to add square footage and boom, your house is now worth like a quarter million more just because you added a bedroom. Whereas in the peninsula, there is more of that, right? So that's, that's one example. You, you might be looking for homes that are uh, high priced enough areas, but 
you know, their size is, is not as big and there's more of a, a value add opportunity there. Um, you might be looking for properties that have large lots. You might be looking for that combined with their equity or something of that nature. There's different lists. There's not just one list I have, but, but like I said, there's a couple of things that I did for about five years that worked very, very beautifully without hardly any direct competition. If you're not counting agents that mm -hmm. I've had to kind of adjust and broaden out. And what is your buying criteria? When do you say, all right, this deal is worth going into or, or not? My buying criteria now, let me give you my formula if that's okay. That's perfect. And, uh, you know, if people are listening, maybe they can grab their calculator and follow along. Let's just say that my, I estimate that the ARV is a million dollars. That ARV is the after repair value. So when the house is remodeled and put on the market, that's the ARV. First, I multiply that by 0.93. So if it's a million dollars times 0.93, that's 930000 let me explain why I did that. I just took off 7% to cover the commission and the closing costs, right? Typically commission when you sell is 5%. And most of these, if I'm not wholesaling, I'm gonna list a house. And if I'm wholesaling, the person's gonna list a house. I don't wholesale as much anymore. So we take off 7%. Now we take off, so that gives us 930 with a house with a million ARV. Now I subtract from that the cost of rehabbing. If a house is under 1,500 square feet here in the Bay Area, I usually use $60,000 as a cost of rehab. If it's between 1,500 and 2,000 square feet, I'll usually use 80,000 as the cost of rehab. And if it's over 2,000 square feet, it could be 100,000 or more, just use your best estimate. But rarely, very rarely have I bought a house over 2,000 square feet. They're almost always smaller, and maybe they were that big when I was done with them, but very rare that I'll buy a house that size. But if so, then maybe it's 100,000, maybe even more. But most of them, they're going to be under 2,000 square feet. So if it's, again, if it's under 1,500 square feet, 60,000. If it's 1,500 to 2,000 square feet, 80,000. Again, these are Bay Area numbers, California numbers. If somebody's listening to this and they live in the Midwest or the Southeast, it's going to be probably much, much lower than that or even different parts of California, like Fresno, Bakersfield, you know, their costs are not that high. So let's say this house is 1,400 square feet. We took the 930, we subtract another 60,000 for the rehab. That gives me 870. I, what I used to do, Sean, until about mm, three or four months ago, is I would multiply that by 0.9. So my offer in a million uh, dollar ARV house my maximum, my MAO, maximum allowed offer was 783. Now I multiply by 0.8. I'm more conservative because of the market. So that would give me 696,000. So again, you take the ARV, you multiply by 0.93, or just deduct, deduct 7% basically. And then you deduct from that your rehab costs. And then I used to multiply by 0.9. Now I multiply by 0.8. Gotcha. Very, very good that you have an actual formula and not just a guesstimate. It used to be a guesstimate. I used to actually guesstimate a lot until I got, uh, I overpaid once. <laughs> and then, you know, this was a few years ago and I was like, okay, I need a formula. I, I need to be more disciplined. I can't just 
um, you know, shoot from the hip and, you know, hope for the best, which, which I did. It worked for me very well for a while, but after I got burned, I was like, okay, I need to be more disciplined. Right. And again, you become more disciplined also by having a lot of options, which is from getting a lot of leads, because like you were saying before, if you don't have a lot of leads, then you start doing stupid stuff, right? <laughs> you start buying yeah. bad deals. What happens when you don't have enough of a lead flow? And I'm going to be honest with you right now. There's there's a couple side, there's a couple things I'm working on business wise that have, in the last few months, taken a little bit of my focus away from flipping. Um, can't really get into those right now, but basically that's why I'm not right now you know, flipping as much. And I also kind of timed it to coincide with the market. I saw the market shifting. I said, okay, <clears throat> there's these other things I've been wanting to do for a while, other business ventures. And now that the market is softening, it's, it seems like a good time to do that because I'm not going to be buying homes as aggressively. Now that doesn't mean that I'm not gonna, I'm not out there looking opportunities because I am. doesn't mean that if something comes to me that makes sense, I won't do it because I gladly will. It just means I'm a little bit less focused, you know, in the last few months um, on on flipping. But, you know, if, if somebody's listening to this, they're listening to a guy that's been doing this for 14 years, who's had ups and downs and, and, and you know, had some bad times, but also been able to make half a million dollars on a deal multiple times, made seven figures a year consistently for quite a few years and has built like a nice portfolio of properties. So... You know, there's definitely some stuff that I think your listeners can learn. But right now, my main focus is not as much on flipping as it was, let's say, a couple of years ago. Um, so I don't have the lead flow that I that I used to. But um, I would say to anybody that is doing this full time, that's very critical to have that lead flow because you want to be able to cherry pick your deals. You don't want to do marginal deals because you're desperate or because you see how much your friend made or you haven't done a deal in a while. You don't want to be like coming from a standpoint of desperation to do a deal. You want to be coming from a standpoint of strength. That's right. And you know, actually during your formula, I noticed your rehab numbers are kind of low. You must have some pretty good contractors available. Are you just using Sergio or do you have like a slew of people that you use? He's my main guy. Yeah. Gotcha. He's kind of my main guy, and he he. What I like about him is it's it's not that he's that great; it's that everybody else sucks from what I hear. Which, <laughs> um, I mean, he's good. Don't get me wrong, but it's an industry where showing up on time and doing what you say, which should be like the standard, is somehow noteworthy and unusual and, you know, worth worthy of, of being commended and praised. Just the fact that somebody does what they say they will do. Like when you go to McDonald's and you get a hamburger, you know, you don't think it's a big deal that you get it in a minute and it tastes how it's supposed to taste. When you go like get your oil changed, you don't, you know, think that it's a big deal that it takes 10 minutes and they do the job they're supposed to. But somehow when you get a contractor, and they actually come in at the bid that they give you and in the amount of time that they tell you that is praiseworthy in that industry because you hear all these horror stories and knock on wood, I've 
I've never had to deal with any of that. Fortunate to have Sergio, and I've worked with a couple others, but he's my main guy. And the other, another really big tip I would like to give your listeners on that front is I'm pretty hands-off. I've found real estate agents that will work. You see, if I'm buying a house, I'm buying it off-market, and normally I'm rehabbing it and selling it on the MLS, right? So normally I will have an agent that I'm going to list the property with. That agent, the agents that I have, I have a couple main agents, they work very well with my contractor, in this case, Sergio. Another lady I worked with was an agent one time. She had her own crew. But the point is they work very well with the contractor, and they know what items to get. They know what materials are in. They know that quartz is in and granite's out. They know that the walls should be a certain shade of gray. They know that um, the door should be red. They know what kind of cabinets. They know what kind of. They know these things much, much better than me. You see, you have flippers that are very hands-on, that are there every day at the rehab, and then you have flippers like me that prefer to be hands-off, whether it's because I'm lazy or I'm not a control freak or whatever it is, I would much rather go to the job site maybe once a week, just kind of take a look at how things are going, drop off some checks, take a few photos to post on Facebook, and that's it. And then like a month later, it's done. Then be the guy there every day and running to Home Depot and getting materials. I'm just not into micromanaging. I'm not into being control freak. There's things I'd rather do with my time than be at the job every day. But that's why people have project managers. And I'm like, what's a project manager when people tell me? I've never had a project manager. I don't need a project manager because I have agents that'll be my project managers, that'll oversee it, that'll pick materials, that'll pick colors. One time Sergio was rehabbing a house for me in San Jose, and he painted one room blue and the next room red and the next room yellow. <laughs> And everybody was like, what the hell? And it might have been, you know, a cultural thing, because if you ever go to Mexico, they're very colorful houses, which I personally love. But that's not what really is recommended for the market here. So whether it was cultural or just his taste or what, I don't know. But ever since then, I don't let him pick colors or materials. <laughs> I have the agent dictate what the tile should be like what the colors should be like. But, you know, I'm not really involved. Makes sense. Well, I also want to say that Sergio is very good. So maybe if you got burned, you would probably be on the site more often. <laughs> yeah, if I got burned, I probably would be there more often. But I'd still try to find agents that can work well with contractors. Yep, so they're they basically your, your designers. Huh? They're basically your designers, the agents. They're, they're your designers, they're your project managers, um, and yeah, I, th that's what I look for from an agent. That's a very important thing I look for from an agent. I mean, it basically seems like there's a big opportunity to have a GC company because the standard is so low. It seems that if you can fulfill the need for investors, then you would have great business. Oh, they're all very busy right now these days, but I mean, you know, if things change, then the ones that are not as good are going to... Not be as busy, I guess. But right now, everybody's busy, whether they're good, bad, mediocre. The problem is getting workers these days. I mean, we wanted to landscape our yard. 
And it took months of calling around to find somebody who could do it. Everybody was telling us, oh, we can do it in the spring. This was like autumn. This was like fall, you know, around October or something. Oh, we're busy till April. We don't do any jobs under $50,000. Wow. I mean, things like that, it tells me that, yeah, you can make a lot of money right now as a landscape architect. You can make a lot of money right now as a contractor. You could maybe do better than even doing those things than as an investor than an investor does. But maybe they're not sexy enough or there's too much because everybody wants to be an investor or flipper or, or whatever. But there's, there's a lot of other things around real estate where people make a lot of money. People make a lot of money selling remod remodeling services. There's all these different things people do. I was at the Grand Cardone 10X conference yesterday and a gentleman came up. He's a little bit younger than I am and he said he made $3 million doing landscaping in the Palo Alto area. $3 million last year. I believe it. It's crazy. I, I believe it. Well, that's, it's probably one of the people that we called because we live in the peninsula. It's probably one of the people we called that was too busy for us. Mm -hmm. Can you go over an example of a deal that you've done and kind of like what was the situation behind that and... Because you said that you don't deal with like foreclosure people. They are maybe sophisticated and whatnot. Yeah, let me give you two deals that I've done. One case, in one case, like a very good deal. And in one case, um, not, not such a good deal. Okay. Um, so let's start with the most recent one, which was not as good. Um, that house, and I, I can even give the address, 21 South Norfolk Street in San Mateo. In Norfolk is N-O-R-F-O-L-K. And this lady called me and she is like a hoarder. And I mean, she has a lot of stuff. You know, she's not like the worst case hoarder, but she's definitely a collector would be a nice way to put it. And she has cats, indoor cats, outdoor cats. In fact, she was going to give me a game when I came over. And then I, I forgot it there. She's like, oh, just pick it up. I said, I'll pick it up tomorrow. And then when I went the next day, she's like, sorry, the cat peed all over it. <laughs> Um, and she basically wanted to sell her house as is, and she called everyone who had ever sent her a letter, and I found out later she called one of my buddies, Dean Higa. Do you know Dean? Yep. And she probably called other people I know, you know, because it's not that big of a community, and she wanted 900 for her house, and I ended up getting it for 900 and then negotiating down a little bit to 885 That house took five months to sell. First, there was the month that she didn't move out. She needed a month to move out. I gave her that. Um, then I tried to sell, then I saw the market changing. I started freaking out a little bit. I tried to sell it as is. And then, no, the offers I was getting were not enough to cover my my costs. Because like, for example, I paid $8.85. By the time I closed, you know what my cost was? My actual payment that I had to make? Like the total cost was nine twelve. The purchase price was eight eighty five. So mm. there was another twenty seven thousand dollars in closing costs, points, and, and my lender only charges like half a point. But insurance, it required flood insurance, which was like a seven thousand dollars or something crazy like that. And so now at that point, from the day I bought it, what I'm saying is I was into it for nine twelve. Even though the purchase price of the house itself was eight eighty five. If I had sold it the next day, I would have needed to net nine twelve just to break even. Mm -hmm. I saw the markets changing. Everybody said the markets changing. This is like August, September of last year. I bought it in August. She moved out in September. So I start trying to 
freaking out a little bit, and I try to do what we call a wholetail, which is sell as is, basically, without rehabbing it. And I put it out there, and best offer I got was like a 930, and it wasn't even in writing. I don't think it was verbal. But they, they need 5% commission because there's two agents. Well, I would have lost money at that point. So after trying that for several weeks, I was like, okay, let me do the obvious thing and rehab it. Well, we rehab it. We put it on the market. By now, it's like late October, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one offer. They have seven-day contingency. On the seventh day, they back out. Make some excuse and back out. Put it back on the market. Now we're getting close to the holidays. No offers. My agent's like, okay, let's do a little more work to it. Let's tweak it a little bit. Fix the cracks in the driveway, whatever, new garage door. You know, it was a couple of small things that he thought would make it look. Put it back on the market. Um, so the first time, no offers. Then after we did that, so first time one offer, they backed out. and we went back on the market, no offers. Did those little tweaks. Now again, one offer. By now it's like December. So it didn't close until January of this year. So for five months, I'm holding it with a loan, with a hard money loan. And that's one of the reasons I changed my formula from 90% to 80%. Do you mind sharing what your offer was or what you got for it? I ended up selling it for 1.1. Okay. So did you make, you break even on that one or did you make a profit on that one? I made a small profit on that one of about 40,000 which I'm not happy with. I'm happier than if I lost money, for sure. I'm happier if I broke even. It's funny because you I'm say 40,000 is small. 40,000 to some people is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, but consider that you're putting a million bucks at play. That's right. That are close to a million. That's partly your money as the down payment. That's partly borrowed money to make after five months 40 grand and consider yourself lucky. I don't think that's a great return. Mm-hmm. I don't think five less like a 4% return after five months is great. So I wasn't too happy about it. I was actually happy to be done, but I was like, okay, I'm going to be now a lot pickier about the deals that I do. Now, let me tell you a home run. It's on a street called Brown Avenue in San Jose and Brown Avenue in San Jose is in a neighborhood called seven trees. That's, considered not a great area, but obviously everything's expensive. Even the crappy areas are expensive. Yep. And a lot of the crappy areas have gotten better in recent years. So my buddy brought me in on that deal and um, he used to be an acquaintance. Now, since this deal, he's my best friend. Okay. <laughs> You'll find out why now. Um, the deal was he bought it for 200000 and how did he get it for so low? Because he mailed, and it was a vacant property, and the guys, the guy grew up there, and his parents, it was his parents' house, and they passed away, and nobody had lived there for like 10 or 15 years. And there was newspapers there from the 1950s. Wow. And he was living in Mountain View, and, and you know, my friend Skip traced him and found him and brought me in on the deal. Uh, for reasons I'm not sure about, but I can't complain. I, I said I'll help him. I'm trying to help him uh, build up his business more. But he got it for two hundred thousand, rehabbed it for about sixty k. Okay, so two hundred put in sixty k. Like you know, I bought my house for eight eighty. The San Mateo one that I flipped for eight eighty five also put in sixty k. Guess what he sold it for? 
Well, I saw this on your Facebook post. So okay, it's kind of cheating. 720000 <laughs> Yeah. Nice. So he made over $400,000 in that deal, and I got a check for about 30%. So that's a deal. They're both from direct mail. <laughs> you know, uh, they're both targeting somewhat similar type of people that have lived there or owned the property a long time. And it's one decision maker and needs work. It's a smaller property. Do you think you can go over the negotiation process for that one? Like when you brought in, was he already under contract for 200 or he's like, hey, I got a lead. Talk to this guy and let's see what we can do. When he brought me in, he already had it. Wow. So, do, you, do you happen to know how he got to say, hey, look, this house I know on Zillow is already probably like 650. I'm going to give you two. How, you know, how did that conversation come about? He, he just lowballed. And, he was, and the guy was like, ah, oh, maybe 250. And, and he was like, uh, you know, no, I think 200. I think that's, it needs so much work. He was just not afraid to lowball. Wow. And um, I don't think I would have gotten that deal because I think I would have actually probably paid more. I would have probably, off. I mean, I'm being honest here. I, I would probably have offered maybe between three fifty to four hundred, and still could, would have considered that a good deal. Sometimes it's like you're, you're indifferent too. Let me tell you another deal that I did um, with Jeff a few years ago in Palo Alto. You may have heard about this one. Mm-hmm. The guy was an out of area agent. This was not direct mail. This was an out of area agent. When I say out of area, he was like in San Jose. He was not like, which you know, it's twenty miles. But when you're in a very affluent market, that actually does make a difference. Like think if you're somebody who's selling a house in Africa, right? And they had a, a sign with a 510 Fremont number, right? Um, that would sort of be considered out of area, right? Yep. Because you have a handful of agents that list most of those properties and those are multi-million dollar properties. So sometimes 15, 20 miles here in the Bay Area, it does make a difference. But this guy was an out of area agent who basically wanted to double end the house and we ended up getting the house for 1.6 and selling it for 2.3 or 2.2 and change. And the whole reason was the guy did not list it on MLS and he just wanted to get the full commission for buying and selling. And so we bought this house, we rehabbed it real quick and we made also close to half a million dollars on it. So basically you guys got it for a low price because no one else was looking at it because it was off market. And because the agent yeah, didn't want to put it on. The guy had a coming soon sign on it, mm-hmm. but he never listed on MLS. And he had other people he was talking to, and he was very kind of passive. And he said, oh, you know, I've got a couple of people. I said, can we write it up? I almost had to push him to write it up. I said, let's put it in writing. And that's a very important thing, too, is like put it in writing. Mm-hmm. I'll just tell somebody like a verbal, put it in writing. Yep. Um. So I wanted to talk a little bit about my, uh, how I shifted my business, if I may. Yep, go ahead. So 2005 to 2008, all I did was wholesale, right? And I came, I got hurt because I was limiting myself. You know, and if you're in my group, Living the Dream, you, you probably read this post, but I was limiting myself to... Um, just a couple buyers to a very specific area into wholesaling. So I didn't have any other exit strategies. And then I came back in 2010 from like a long trip overseas. And I said, okay, I got to get back into real estate because I'm good at it. I need to make money, but let me do a little bit better and smarter this time. But I was starting to find 
deals in high-end areas. And I found this house in Los Altos, which is a very high-end area. And a friend of mine brought the buyer and I, I had brought the deal, which I found, I negotiated, I got under contract for 1.1 million. And we got a $25,000 assignment fee, which we split. So I made 12,500 and I was happy. About two months later, the rehabber sold the house and made about a $400,000 net profit. Nice. And I realized I'm doing something wrong because I made 12,500, they made 400K. And that's when like, it was kind of a, a light bulb moment, which maybe it should have been obvious long time before that, but I'm really limiting myself by just wholesaling. And I just made 12,500 and they got 30 times that. And there's no way I'm gonna reach my financial goals if I'm getting these low five figure checks, I need to start getting six figure paydays. So I realized to me that making seven figures in a year was my goal and that I'm not going to get to seven figures unless I start getting six figures consistently. Because there's only like two ways to make a lot of money in this business when you really break it down. There's high volume or there's getting like really big six and maybe even seven figure deals. We've made $2 million on a house. It wasn't all mine, but we've built brand new luxury homes and we made $2 million on one house. So you can make even seven figure paydays, nice. probably even eight figure paydays. In residential, you can definitely make six-figure paydays and occasional seven-figure ones. If you want to make seven figures a year, those are the only two methods. You either do a lot of deals, in which case you need a team and you need disciplined employees and you know how, need to know how to manage them, hire them, train them, recruit them, motivate them, fire them when needed, or you learn how to do big deals. And you do big deals you do several of those in a year, you can reach seven figures just from a handful of deals. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you have your conference, 500K Deals. Do you want to talk kind of like about that and how yeah, some people are doing? We have the conference in late March. If you're interested in information, the conference is all about how to do $500,000 or more on a single deal. And the, let me just talk briefly about some of the other ways that they're done. I did it on houses where they were primarily, okay, I've made 500K, let's say 400 and above, because a few times it was a little bit under 500. But I think that's close enough we can put in the category. 400 and above I've made either on properties where it was really underpriced for what it should be, but other times it was properties where the upside to a developer was huge. So for example, I got a house in Palo Alto for one and a half million that I was able to sell a few days later for two million with no commission to a builder that I knew. And they ended up making about a couple million bucks on it. What? So happy to get it. I was happy to get the deal. And and the seller actually required a very long rent back period in about a year. And that did not kill the deal because in this unique situation, the buyer needed time to get plans and permits made and didn't really mind so much that the house wasn't going to be vacant right away. Now, if this was 20 miles away, it would have been a different story. So that's why it's so important to know your submarket, not just your market as a whole, but your individual submarket. And then I did the same thing on another property that also had somebody had basically turned it into a dormitory, uh, these kind of hippie college or post-college students that had this 
idea about a bunch of kids living there in one house and set up bunk beds and had like 15 or 20 people living in this very high-end residential neighborhood and uh, sold that one also in a few days and made about half a million on that one as well. To a developer as well? The developer as well. And another one I did was uh, duplex in San Francisco that was fire damaged and they wanted to sell for, they were going to list it for 800, but we got a hold of the agent and we said, okay, we'll give you 800 right now. And the agent said, no, 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 it's going to go multiple offers. How much do you want? We said 900. Now, I wasn't 100% sure it was a good deal or not, but I thought it was. So what I did was I put dealers out there before we even closed and just shot it out to people for one, 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 two, and they were all over it. And that gave me the confidence to actually close. So it closed on it and then sold it two weeks later for million three fifty. So bought for 900, wow. didn't do anything. Two weeks later, sold it for 450000 more. So those deals are out there. Do I find them every day or every week? No. But... Um, they're definitely out there. Another way that people make 500K on the deal is multifamily. So I have a friend of mine spoke at the last conference. Basically, he bought an apartment building out of state for $1.1 million, fixed it up a bit, raised rents, it appraised for, I think, two point four, and he was able to refinance it and pull half a million dollars cash out in his pocket tax-free and it's still cash flowing. Why tax-free? Because it's a loan. You yep. pay money when you sell a property. I mean, you pay taxes when you sell a property. You pay taxes on rents. You pay taxes on profits. You pay taxes on wages, if you're receiving wages. But you don't pay taxes on a loan. If you lend me $1,000 now, that is not a taxable event. Nice. So it was a million-dollar loan. But the is enough to cover the mortgage and other expenses that he has. So not only he got half a million tax-free, he's still cash flowing. And, um, you know, I have developers that are going to speak that make millions of dollars. And then people that buy uh, bulk REOs that do very well doing that. And there's about seven or eight different ways that you can make half a million or more in a deal. Some are residential, some are commercial, some are uh, wholesaling related or double closing others maybe require you to put a little more investment of your own or other people's money in but there's some capital required there's different strategies but i've chosen to focus on these strategies because to me the alternative is to build a big business and that's the, the people that i know i don't know if you've had don costa on yet or not nope uh, people that i admire very much like him they've built great businesses and but they have employees, they have offices, they have all this overhead. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's not the model that I'm personally interested in following at this point. There's a lot of nice things about being a one-man or one-person operation. Yep. Makes sense. By the way, just question. When you were selling those properties to those builders, how did you know that you'd be able to sell that Palo house for $2 million or so to a developer? Because that's kind of hard to comp, right? Uh, it's actually not that hard to comp because you can see what other teardowns in the area are selling for. And also because I know that market so well, I know what they can resell for and I know what they're looking for. Like they were looking for a million dollar net profit. They, they had told me that we're looking for 
here's our cost to build. It's like 250 a square foot. And if we can sell a property and you can show us how we can add a million or more, we're interested. Got it. We can closer to 2 million. But that, I think most investors, and I'm saying this, I don't want to sound arrogant, but most investors would not have touched that deal just because they wouldn't have seen the opportunity because you have to, first of all, know that sub-market very well. Not just the Bay Area, but that particular area. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you have to be okay with giving the seller a long rent back. And that works for builders. That doesn't work like it. Like I tried to do the reverse. I was coming from that market in the peninsula and I went to Berkeley and I had a house under contract. Uh, this is back in like six, seven years ago when I was wholesaling more and closing less than I am now. And the seller needed like a month to move out. And I had never had a big issue with that in the peninsula. Like that was never a problem. That was never a deal breaker. But in Berkeley, person, like buyer after buyer after buyer, said, uh, I, I can't do it if this guy's still living there when we close. And I was like, what? And they said, it's Berkeley. There's all kinds of tenant protection laws. Once we close, if he's still legally in there, he's considered a tenant. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. You need to know your sub-market. You need to know that what works in Berkeley may not work in Palo Alto. What works in San Jose is different from San Francisco. You have all kinds of rent control laws, tenant-friendly laws. You have, just as far as the market, some areas are great for cash flow properties, right? Like like right now, Antioch, Bay Point, that area, I have rentals there. The cash flow is great. You know, you can get 8%, 10% cap rates. But Peninsula is terrible. You get maybe 3% cap rate, but it's great for flipping. It's great for doing additions. San Francisco, you don't want to be a landlord, but, you know, it's, it's good for flipping. Other areas... You know, I said like Peninsula is good for doing additions. Hayward isn't, but Hayward's going to cash flow better. Hayward, you could maybe build multi-units, which is very hard to do in the Peninsula. So you need to know the different sub-markets here within the Bay Area. Or if you're listening to this podcast and you're in Los Angeles or another big metro area with millions of people with different types of towns and neighborhoods and zip codes, the same thing applies. What works in one place may not work even 10 miles away or five miles away. Or you cross a bridge and, you know, here you go from San Mateo to Hayward, it's just one bridge. Prices drop 70% as soon as you cross that bridge. (laughs) Yep. Because everybody, if they can afford it, they want to be on this side, the peninsula. If they can't afford it, they're in Hayward. Worse schools, terrible commute. But people like it for cash flow. But all you're doing is crossing one bridge or you cross from San Francisco to parts of Oakland and prices drop 70%. Literally the same house that would be 1.2 to 1.5 million on our side here on the West across the bridge. It's four or 500,000. That's right. I mean, I live in Milpitas, so I get the best of the East Bay and the West side. Mm-hmm. 20 minute drive to Cupertino, but my prices are about maybe a third of Cupertino's prices. You know what I would like the most about living in Milpitas? What? Dave and Buster's is right there. There you go. <laughs> you go there? I live really close to Dave and Buster's, yeah. Yeah, you go there? Okay. Of course I go there. I love that place. I love it. So I was wondering, what kind of advice would you give to a younger person 
or maybe even to yourself 20 years ago? Well, 20 years ago, I wasn't even in real estate. I'd say get into real estate, learn all about wholesaling and start marketing and, and you know, flipping properties. Um, if you, <clears throat> the same advice 10 years ago. So 10 years ago uh, would have been 2009. I had done wholesaling, but I was not, I never bought a place. I never closed and I limited myself too much. I would say if you're not in real estate right now, get into it, do everything initially to minimize or eliminate risk, which is either wholesaling or joint venturing or structuring in a way that you don't have to put up a bunch of your own money, maybe no money of your own. And for everybody, that's step one, okay? Step two is be adaptable because the market is gonna change, conditions will change, and you need to change with them. Even what I'm telling you, some of these deals that I got that were home runs would be harder for me to find them today, being frankly with you, because some mailing lists, I was the only person mailing to them. And they told me that. And today, I don't think that's the case anymore. So I've had to go broader. I, now I'm going to look at properties in Hayward, for instance. Now I'm doing deals in San Jose and San Francisco and not just in the peninsula anymore. So be adaptable. And thirdly, I would see, look at who is doing big deals and how they're doing it. Or if you're interested in running a big operation, look at who is running a bigger operation efficiently and how they're doing it. Because ultimately, I think if you're in real estate, you want to get to seven figures a year at a minimum. And that's not because of greed or anything like that, but that's because of the cost of living and being able to retire comfortably at a relatively young age or being able to set your own schedule and feel financial freedom. I don't think you get there in most places anymore on six figures. I really don't because, you know, what struck me was that if you're making like 250, 300K a year, which I, I was for the first few years, I was wholesaling and I was happy with it then, don't get me wrong. But then I realized you're, you're hardly saving anything. You're not really building wealth. You're making a living. You're maybe making a nice living. Maybe you're, you're probably driving the kind of car you want. You can take nice vacations. You can go out to eat without having to count every penny. But are you really amassing wealth? Are you really building not even a fortune, but building financial freedom? No, to do that, you need to put away at least a few hundred thousand a year. And to put away a few hundred thousand a year, you need to be making at least a million a year because the tax man is going to take a big bite of that. So now you're down, if you're making a million a year, you're down to maybe 600. And now to save a few hundred thousand, you got to be making at least that. Yep, it's a big mindset shift. I mean, most people would be happy with the even $100,000 away from their W-2. So to go from even seven, like seven figures, that's a lot. Like my mom was saying that seven figures in her whole lifetime would be amazing. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, it is a mindset shift. Um, and I'm not saying you get there right away. Like in 2011, when I realized that, um, you know, I started kind of realizing these things. And that was like that time that I made 12500 on that deal. And I realized the rehabber made 400,000 and I said, okay, I need to start closing on these things. 
and I really was shifting from wholesaler to investor. Because I used to say I'm a wholesaler. Now I say I'm an, or now, I mean, since 20, maybe 12, I say I'm an investor and wholesaling is one tool. So anyway, in 2011, I said, I'm going to make a million dollars net next year, which was 2012. It didn't happen in 2012, but it did happen in 2013. Nice. So you don't always reach the goal right away when you set it. But, but I, I believe that making a goal, especially in writing it down, is a step towards it. So you may not achieve it as soon as you want, but you're progressing towards it. And, and that's all we can do. And there'll be setbacks. I want to give everybody that advice too. I mean, I have setbacks now. I mean, I, I just, I'm not here to tout myself as perfect. I mean, I've just told you I had this humbling experience and this house took five months to sell and I only made about 40,000 on it. And when I say only, <clears throat> yes, 40,000 is a lot of money, but that's on a million dollars. I, and it's five months and it's stress and it, you know, um, so I, I don't consider that a big victory. The, the properties that I bought that didn't work out was usually doing something that's outside the area. So in one case, it was a house in Los Angeles. It was in the Hollywood Hills. And everything that said that I would have used here in the Bay Area to say, this is a deal, this is a deal, I did. But it didn't work there. So there were comps, there were higher. There were agents saying, they'll get me a buyer for 200000 more. There were, you know, it was a big lot, it was a big house. All these things that seemed to check out, it didn't matter over there. When I was buying it, everybody was encouraging. And then later, I find out, oh, but there's special fire district here. There's the Coastal Commission. Is it, it's the views are the wrong way. They're looking towards the valley and not the city. And there's an easement and, and it's not the right style. Things I never thought of, things I never heard of, things that nobody mentioned when I was doing my due diligence to buy it suddenly came into play when I was going to sell. And I actually closed on it. And I was very, very grateful that's, that, you know, several excruciating and stressful months later, I ended up breaking even. I bought a property last year in Oregon. It was a land parcel, about 30 minutes outside of Portland. I know Portland is a hot market. And um, my friend found this, this land property. And we negotiated with the seller, or he mostly negotiated with the seller to buy it for 140. When I called agents, the estimates for what we could resell for range from 250 to 325. And they said, if you want to sell it in a week, I can sell it for you in the low 200s. And so I closed on it. What happens? Eight months to sell it for the same price I bought it for. Eight months. Mm. All these people said I could sell for double what you paid for it in a week or two. Um, and then another one I did was a mobile home park in South Carolina. And I bought it. Uh, the, the property manager said, you can net 3000 a month from this. It was basically cash flow play. I've seen, I'd be lucky to see a $500 check every two months from it. I finally sold it on payments. The guy that was making payments to me stopped paying several months ago. I now initiated foreclosure, but he claims he's selling it. Uh, it was no $3,000 a month. It was nothing. I had 
vandalism, theft, threats, vacancies, druggies, violent people, and all these different things to deal with it. And all three of these had the common denominator that they were outside the area and outside my comfort zone. So what I will tell the listeners is when they tell you go outside your comfort zone, be careful because that's a two-edged sword. You can also lose a lot of money going outside your comfort zone. So just find like an area or a couple areas and become an expert in them. But also be adaptable and be flexible. But what I'm saying is do everything to minimize risk, especially if you're going outside of the type of area and properties that you're familiar with. I don't really regret trying different things, but my track record is really good like at making money here in the Bay Area and really bad when I go to other areas. And the reason is if I move to LA, I believe I could make money in LA. If I move to Portland, I believe, but I would have to really get to know those markets. Gotcha. Trying to do it remotely is, is very tough. You know, even though you had bad experiences there, you haven't, it doesn't seem like you've lost a lot. Do you have like a really bad story that you actually took a big L? Like what's the worst you've lost on a, on a deal if you're available to share that? It's still going on. That deal is still going on, to be honest with you. Um, it's so I, 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 it's probably going to be my biggest loss and it's going on now, so it's not over yet. So I don't know how much I want to say because it's not over. All right. We, just Robert, put good thoughts into it. Maybe overcover. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just say let's just put good thoughts into it and don't think of it as a loss. We can cut this well, part out, I, by the way. I'm going to lose money on it. Um, that almost That's almost certain. But um, it's basically a tenant-related situation, multi-unit situation in San Francisco. And i um, been dealing with it for months now. And it's, it's definitely the biggest headache I've had. Um, but since it's not over yet, I don't want to talk about it too much. But I, I will tell you one that I definitely lost money on. Okay. That was here in San Jose. I mean, here in the Bay Area in San Jose. And, um, and also forced me to, to look at things differently. And I can, I can read even, I, I wrote down like the lessons that I learned from it. Okay, let me tell you what happened was I bought a property in San Jose and it was in the summer of 2016, okay? And that was right before the presidential election. And I think people were nervous about what was going to happen and there was some uncertainty in the market. Even though generally it had been a hot market, there was some uncertainty about it. And this house in San Jose was pretty big. It was bigger than most houses in the neighborhood. It seemed to comp out well, but when we put it on the market, we didn't get any offers for several weeks. And the offer that we ended up getting um, was put me at a loss of about 60K, mostly because of closing costs. Even though my agent ended up charging me a lot less, I think he only charged me like 1% or 1.5, and I still ended up losing about 60K on that house. Mm-hmm. So I made a list of my mistakes on that property, which I think I want to read because people can benefit from that. Yep. <clears throat> so first of all, I had a non-local agent who wasn't connected. So he was a peninsula agent. Again, when I say non-local doesn't mean from 300 miles away, but sometimes 
20 or 30 miles can make a difference. Not knowing that the garage conversion was liability. So we had this room that was a converted garage. And I thought that would be good. It's like more another bedroom for people. But the demographics of that area, and sometimes these things are cultural or ethnic, that some groups like more living space and others are afraid of anything that is not legally compliant. So here we had more living space, but it wasn't legally compliant. It was an unpermitted garage conversion. I thought that was a plus and it ended up being a liability. The house was big, number three, the house was big, but it was above the median for the neighborhood. Try not to buy a property that's above the median for the neighborhood. That's the lesson, right? Lesson number four, looking for, look for signs of a softening market. The market was starting to soften and I didn't pay enough attention to that. Lesson number five, my contractor who generally is very good, the same, same guy, Sergio, um, went 20,000 over on the bid. I should push back a little bit more because every dollar ended up counting here. Every dollar over was a loss. Number six, make sure you have enough of a spread, especially if you're buying, not wholesaling. I had a 9% projected profit. I was expecting initially to make 100K. That's not enough on, on a 1.1 million, not enough. That goes back to my formula now, which is 80%, not 90% after you deduct expenses. Number seven, if you don't get good offers in the first couple of weeks, just take what comes, as long as you're not losing money. I think we had one offer early on that was break-even, and I hesitated a little bit, and then they were gone. Would they have closed? I don't know. But the offer we did get a month later was much worse. Eight, high price and wouldn't cash flow as a rental, so fewer options. You Ideally, on a property, if you can't sell it, you can rent it or you can expand it. There's also no plan B here to add value by remodeling or expanding it. Bottom line out of all of these things is, you know, the projected profit was only 9% and that ended up going away. So, you know, you gotta buy it, buy it right. But don't try not to buy above the median. I'd rather buy, if it's a house that has three bedroom, two bath homes, and they're all going for half a million, let's say 500K and you've come across a bigger one, it's five bedrooms, it's three bathrooms, and it's 600K, I would rather buy a two-bed, one-bath house for 400 in that neighborhood and have the cheapest house than have the most expensive house in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's tough to sell the most expensive house in the neighborhood because now you're going to a price range where they can buy in a better neighborhood. Yep, makes sense. So do you have any other closing thoughts or things that you want to say? Okay, so I came up with this... Uh, 10 Rules for Success some time ago. And I'd like to uh, read those real quick because it really helped me. So number one, positive attitude is a must. I could dwell on all the deals that didn't work out and all the challenges of being self-employed, but instead I focus on opportunity and possibility. There has been a lot of doom and gloom recently, but this is still the land of opportunity. Number two, focus even more than hard work. I'm lazy. I spend most days at the park, at cafes, at movies, etc. This is when I was single. This changed a little bit. Okay. <laughs> My wife won't let me do that as much now. But I've put systems into place to generate potential deals on a regular basis. And when there's a deal, I'm like a shark, like a bulldog. I bite and don't let go without a fight. If there's a way to make it work, I make it work. 
So I'm saying focus. People talk about hard work a lot, but they don't talk enough about focus. Number three, don't deal with flakes. Associate in business only with people who are successful or have the right attitudes to become successful. Like I have a very good friend that I tried to work with and it was a disaster because she's not reliable. Now, I still love her as a friend, but I wouldn't work with her. Also, beware those who overpromise and underdeliver. But I guess that's a form of flakiness too. Number four, use multiple strategies for getting deals. Use massive and consistent effort as number five. Don't expect meek and weak efforts or occasional efforts to yield any impressive results on a regular basis. Number six, become an expert in your market and learn to adapt to changing markets and different markets, market and property types. Number seven, be smart greedy, <laughs> not dumb greedy. Smart greedy equals trying to maximize your profit on each deal through negotiation, which is the most profitable activity known to mankind through the way you structure the deals. Notice that my deal that I said I could have made 400,000, but I made 12,000. The only difference was deal structuring, how I took it down. I wholesale and I didn't structure it to rehab it. I still found the deal. I still negotiated the deal, everything. The difference is deal structuring. Stupid greedy is taking foolish risks, cutting corners that shouldn't be cut, destroying relationships for short-term gain, stuff like that. Number eight, if any one, I capitalize one, if any one deal, agent, client, investor, buyer, seller, etc., can make you or break you, you've put yourself in an overly vulnerable position. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And this applies to business in general. My father was an accountant. He worked for a company that was testing microchips or packaging microchips for that one client, Intel. Guess what? Intel one day for I don't know why, what reason, either took it in-house or just stopped working with them. There went their whole business. They became they were entirely dependent on Intel. Before I got into real estate, I was selling diamonds briefly. My only sales outlet was eBay. One day, a couple of people complained. They shut me down. I wake up in the morning. My eBay account was shut down. This is 2004. That's it. I'm out of business. You don't ever, and even me in the real estate, I had two buyers. That's not enough. I had one method for selling deals, which was wholesaling. You don't ever want it to be dependent on one anything, one buyer, one client, one realtor, one seller, one anything. One method for finding deals. Don't ever depend on one anything. Number nine, business, like life, is filled with ups and downs. Try not to let either affect you too much. With that said, do reevaluate and readjust as needed periodically if you're not getting the results you desire. First, review one through eight, which we just discussed, and ask which of these you could be doing better. Number 10, always aim higher. Demand and expect more from yourself than anyone else would. So I just, uh, thank you. I just wanted to give out my email in closing. Jason, J-A-S-O-N at 500-500-K-D-E-A-L-S.com. Okay, Jason at 500-K-Deals.com. Okay, thanks, Sean. Thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate your time. No problem. All right, take Bye. care. Bye. Here are some of the key takeaways I got from speaking with Jason Boozy. You need to have rules and formulas and really stick with it. It's better to let a deal go than to chase after a bad deal. Focus on one area. And when you first start farming and sending direct mail, it's very easy to want to send a lot of letters to a wide area. 
But the real secret is to send the same house the same letter for months and months. You should be hitting the same house 10 times versus 10 houses just one time. And you need to get really familiar with your area. Investing out of your market has a lot of inherent risks. And that's where even the pros get burned. Focus on doing bigger deals instead of many smaller deals. Every project has issues and complications. So you'll be a lot happier if you just focus on very few quality deals. And this comes from having strong deal flow. If you're interested in learning how to make deals that can generate a net profit of 500K or more, go to the 500K Deals Workshop. It's at the end of March, and I'm really excited for the opportunity to even meet and learn from these big investors. Go ahead and check out the course and reread the list of 10 things that Jason says. Learn from the best, and you'll be like the best. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.